Welcome to Clets Heads, the podcast about bilingual children. My name is Sharon Onsworth, linguist at Radboud University in Nijmegen, the Netherlands, a mother of two bilingual children. In this episode of Clets Heads, we're talking about words. How does the bilingual mind deal with words from two languages? And I share another Clets Heads quick and easy concrete tip you can put into practice straight away to make the most out of the bilingualism in your family class or clinic and it's the last one of the season because after this episode we've just one more to go until the second season of Clets in English is over I'm not sure yet whether there'll be a third but if you do have any suggestions for topics you'd like to hear more about or if you have any feedback about this season do let me know. Were the tips that I shared in the quick and easies useful? What did you think of Hot Off The Press? And would you like to hear more episodes of Clets Heads? If so, once every two weeks, or would you prefer once a month? Or are you not really that bothered? Let me know by sending an email. The address is kletsheads at ru.nl. You can also drop me a line via the website or get in touch via social media. Our handle is at Kletzheads. Now, on with the podcast. Does your toilet have a saddle? Ours does. And if I ask you whether you're wearing a vest, do you think of a piece of underwear or a jacket? In our house, it might be either. And if you burp after eating, what do you say? Excuse me, maybe? Or pardon? But probably not horses. That's what our family sometimes says. And I'm pretty certain that we wouldn't be saying any of these things in English if we didn't also know Dutch. Bilingual children sometimes say things that their monolingual peers would never say. And this is the same for adults too. They don't always know certain words in each of their two or more languages. And that's something we've talked about in previous episodes of the podcast. And in many cases, when bilingual children do know the word in question, and there really are many cases, they can't always think of it straight away. And again, this also holds for adults. I speak from experience here as someone who sometimes has to use Google Translate from Dutch to English to remember what a word is in my native language. As a parent, teacher or speech language therapist, you may wonder whether all of this is normal. And the answer is yes. Being creative with words, not always finding the right one, and sometimes saying things in ways monolinguals would never do is quite normal. In this episode, we explain why this is the case, how we know this exactly, and what this tells us about how the bilingual mind deals with words from two languages. We're going to do this together with Ellie Kutamanis. Ellie works with me at Rabat University in Nijmegen, where she does research on exactly this topic. You might have guessed it from a surname, Kutamanis. Ellie is of Greek origin. She was born here in the Netherlands and grew up here in a family where Greek was spoken. And so she's bilingual herself. I started by asking Ellie if she recognised herself in any of the examples I just mentioned. Yeah, I definitely recognise myself in that, uh, especially the not being able to come up with the word. So as you said, I was born in the Netherlands. I've lived here all my life. So my Dutch is definitely better than my uh, Greek. So especially in Greek, it's very often happens that I know a word. Maybe I've said it yesterday, but I can't think of it today. Yeah, 
I have that in English too, actually, after so many years in the Netherlands. But what was that like as a kid growing up then? Was that the same? Uh, yes, I, I especially remember uh, when we, we would always go to Greece for the for the summer. So the first few days in Greece, I just couldn't express myself and that always felt a bit difficult. And then the first uh, days, maybe back home again, back in the Netherlands, then I, I would still I still wanted to keep on speaking Greek, even though we were back in the Netherlands and I was meeting Dutch friends again. Yeah, can be uh, a bit annoying sometimes. Yeah, but presumably when you were over in Greece in the summer after a few days, you were able to find all those words that were... Yeah, yeah. so it just takes some time to get into the Greek, the Greek, groove. The Greek language, the, the Greek groove, and then, uh, yeah, then it would be fine. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So if we think about all the words that bilingual children have in their, have in their head, have in their mind from each of their languages, then you've basically got two options, right? So either you've got like two bins, as it were, within one bin, the words from one language. So for you, one, one Greek bin and a, and a Dutch bin. Or you just got one big bin with them all in it, all the words from the two different languages in it together. Which one is the is the right one when it comes to how we should think about how a bilingual mind deals with words from two different languages? Yeah, so that's a very important question uh, indeed for the bilingualism uh, research that we do. And yeah, you might think that it's easier to have two separate bins. So then you just decide, now I'm going to speak my one language, now the other. But in fact, it seems to be the case that there's one large bin where all the words that you know from all the languages that you know are, are yeah, stored together. Right. So I think people listening might think, well, that seems a bit chaotic, a bit of a mess. Is, is that how we should see it? Well, maybe sometimes. <laughs> but yeah, so it's important, I think, to realize what knowing a word actually means, what yeah. kind of information uh, we're talking about. So the most important levels, I think, to distinguish is that we know word meanings and we know word forms. So the words themselves, the, the words that we use, and we know which word belongs to which meaning. So then, yeah, if you know the word or in two different languages, mm -hmm. it's actually more efficient, I like to think, to store them in one place because they're connected to the same meaning. They belong to the same meaning. So you just have, I always draw it as a triangle. So you have one meaning. Well, for example, a cat. We can have the meaning of a cat, just the animal, uh, you know, what it looks like. Yeah, yeah. that's the same in, in, in all languages, I think. Like the concepts. Yeah, so that's one part of the triangle, and then the other two are the two different words that you know. So it's just stored in one system, you could say. Yeah, so I'll show that diagram in the show notes, I think. So we've got at the top, say, the concept, the cat, and then for you it would be cut in Dutch. And I know you've told me this before, but I've forgotten. What is, this, what is the Greek word for cat? Rata, with a very difficult sound. Rata, rata. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. so you have the, the concept, the idea of a cat, the meaning of the word cat, and then I would have the word rata and the word cat connected both to the same concept, to the same yeah. meaning. Okay. And so how do we know this? So I know most of the research in this area has been done with bilingual adults. So maybe you can tell us a bit about 
what we know from that research. Yeah, well, words like cat or cut are actually very commonly used in research because yeah, they're actually kind of a special word. I think in all the languages that we've mentioned so far, yeah, it means exactly the same thing. And the word form, the way that you pronounce it, is also kind of similar or actually very similar for example, cat and cut. So these words are uh, called cognates, translations that also sound alike. And yeah, in research that yeah that has especially been done with uh, bilingual adults, people are, for example, shown pictures of maybe a cat and a dog that's very different in the two languages. So that's not a cognate. And the people would have to yeah name the picture, say what they're uh, seeing in the picture as fast as they can. Mm-hmm. And then if we measure uh, their, yeah, the, the time it, it takes them to start speaking to from the time that they see the picture until they start saying the word, you can see that uh, very often that words like cats so or cognates are produced earlier than, than other words that are not related uh, to the form in the other language. Okay, so if you're, if you're a native speaker of Dutch and you know English as well, you'll respond more quickly when you see the picture cat because it sounds like and it means the same as got in Dutch, whereas for dog, which is hunt in Dutch and obviously dog in English, uh, you would respond a bit slower, right? Yeah. Yeah, so all the information that you have points to the same meaning. I don't know if that makes sense, but it, yeah, all the information sort of converges to uh, that makes it easier. Yeah. You, you see a picture and the fact that there's a, a lot of overlap between the form. The form is essentially, I mean, it's not identical, but it's very, very similar across your two languages. It means that you can more quickly access that form, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. You can use the information from the other language. Yeah. Can you tell us how this then shows what we said before, that your two languages are actually together? in one bin, as it were, rather than completely separated from each other. Yes. Actually, maybe that's easier with another type of experiment. Yeah. That's called lexical decision, where you read words or you hear words. Uh, you have to say if it's a real word or not. So then, again, we see that people uh, who speak Dutch and English would respond faster to cat than to dog. And I think in this, in this other direction, it's a bit easier to explain. You hear the word cat. So then you recognize that as cut because it sounds so much like cat. You sort of recognize that that too. Uh, so you, yeah, you recognize that it's definitely a word in both languages. And there's yeah, there's no conflict between those two words. Instead, they're both like pointing in the same direction. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Uh, you recognize it as maybe more than one existing word, but they all mean the same thing. They're all existing words in all the languages that you speak, basically. Okay, so there are two different ways in which we can find out how the words are organized in the mind of a a bilingual person. Of course, you've got other kinds of words, right? Words that sound the same, but mean something different. Uh, My favorite example, which I know we've talked about before, is acorn, which, so if you're listening in English, acorn is, you know, the small nut of the oak tree whereas in dutch acorn which sounds very different i don't know if you could hear that i was actually speaking dutch acorn is actually the dutch word for squirrel it's a source of great confusion in our house at times whether we're talking about squirrels or acorns 
In part, I think, because they're actually kind of related to each other mm-hmm. as well, right? Yeah. Because squirrels go around burying acorns. What happens with those kinds of uh, words? Because, as I said, you know, for us, it's a, it's almost, well, a source of confusion, I think, is a bit overstating it. But it's definitely sometimes we're like, uh, which word do you mean? Yeah, and that's exactly what we see in experiments as well. Yeah, it uh, goes very fast. I think that's also important to know with these kinds of experiments. You're really talking about uh, milliseconds here. But yeah, that's basically what would happen then. So in these lexical decision experiments, so where you hear a word and you have to decide if it's a real Dutch word, you hear acorn, you have to think, okay, do you recognize that as the Dutch word acorn? But you also recognize it as the English acorn. And then there is a bit of a conflict going on because you think, okay, uh, you sort of have to maybe not as consciously as I'm uh, explaining yeah. it now, but yeah. you sort of have to make a decision. Uh, is this the Dutch word or the English word? Yeah, Which one are we talking about right now? So then it takes a little bit longer to, for example, decide if it's a real Dutch word or not. Yeah. Because you also have this English word in your mind. Yeah. Yeah, and again, like you said, it's important to point out to the listeners that this is really something that happens unconsciously. I mean, it can happen very consciously yeah. at times, right? Like I said, in our house, it's like, uh, which oh no, it's the acorn, acorn thing again. But in the experiments that we do in the lab, as it were, then it's really a matter of milliseconds and really, you know, something that maybe people aren't very aware of. And in fact, we try and, and create experiments so that they're not aware of this, right, when they're doing it. Yeah, of course they don't, especially these these false friends, these uh, acorn, acorn words. I mean, they're kind of accidental usually. They're not super common. So you wouldn't want to put too many in a row in an experiment or people will start to notice it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So going back to that first kind of word, the cognates, we were talking about cat and got in uh, English and Dutch, respectively. Some of those are are more similar than others, right? So, for example, you've also got table and tafel, which I think even if you don't know Dutch, tafel, you you might, in a certain context, at least be able to guess that it means table. So there, there definitely there's some similarity, but they're not as similar. Do we see the same kinds of effects for all these different kinds of words? So, in other words, does it matter how similar words are or not? Yeah, so this has been studied in uh, bilingual adults. And yeah, it does matter in the sense that these cognate effects uh, seem to be a bit gradual. So the more similar the two words are, the stronger the effect becomes. But that's not to say that there's that there's no effect if the words are not as similar. So it's it will still happen, but it's just a smaller uh, effect. Yeah. And what about comparing languages with each other right so because some languages are a lot more similar to each other than others right so for example german and dutch are really similar to each other spanish and italian are similar to each other at least when you compare it with german and chinese or spanish and arabic does that seem to matter and when it comes to you know the the findings with respect to these different kinds of words Actually, we don't really know the simple uh, answer to that question mm-hmm. yet. I think yeah, many studies that or many experiments have been done with, for example, Dutch and English, very often English. Yeah. Also a lot of Catalan Spanish, for example. Mm-hmm. So 
those are also very similar. So I, I think sort of a twofold problem here, actually. So we don't have that much knowledge yet about other types of language combinations or not as much as maybe the more closely related languages. And the other thing is that it's kind of difficult to distinguish, I think, the, the overall language closeness or language similarity from those specific cognate effects or from the specific words. Yeah, so we know that we know that there are effects for these words that are very similar to each other, but we don't know whether that's really to do with those specific words or just more generally that languages, some languages are more closely related to each other than other pairs of languages. I think there is work looking at, for example, Chinese-English bilinguals showing that you do see an effect. The, the yeah. effects still exist across distant languages. Right? Yeah, that's true. That's important. Yeah. Uh, so it's more, what I was saying is more about, is the effect more noticeable in Dutch and German than in English and Chinese? But yeah, no, there is some work that shows that it's uh, it does happen yeah. in other yeah. languages as well. Yeah. And like you said as well, I think this is also a re reflection of the dominance of English in the research world, as well as, you know, more, more generally in the world and the lack of research looking at many, many of the other, what, 6,000 languages that are at least now still with us. We're going to leave our conversation with Ellie now to hear another Klet's Heads Quick and Easy, a concrete tip you can put into practice straight away to make the most out of the bilingualism in your family, class or clinic. Klet's Heads Quick and Easy. As a parent of a bilingual child, when you talk about bilingualism, it's often with your partner, another family member or a friend, or perhaps with a teacher. I think it's much less common to talk about bilingualism with your child. And yet this is so important. So that Klet's Head's quick and easy for this episode is to talk to your child about their bilingualism. Now, why would you want to do this? According to Eowyn Chrisfield, the author of my absolute favourite book on raising bilingual children, talking to your child about their bilingualism is an important part of family language planning. Children need to see the benefit of their different languages. Often that's easy for the school language because children use that language almost every day for learning, but also with friends and sometimes with one or both parents. The importance of the other language or languages, the home or heritage language, is sometimes less obvious for some children. If you talk to your child about their bilingualism, you can involve them in decisions that you make. For example, about the choice of a secondary school, whether or not to attend a complementary school or heritage language school at the weekend, whether or not to learn to read in the home language. By talking to them and involving them in the discussion, the chances are greater that the conversation you will have will be a positive one. So how should you go about it? Well, as a parent, you can explain why it's important for you that your child learns the different languages. For example, tell them why a certain language is important for you or your family, why you've chosen to use this language, if there really was a choice, of course. You might want to tell them why you think this language will be important for the future, what your hopes and desires are when it comes to your family's bilingualism. And of course, you can ask them about how they see their future when it comes to their bilingualism. I think it's important not to put too much pressure on children when you're having such a conversation. 
and also where there are challenges or difficulties to recognise them and look for solutions or changes you can make together. What you want is a positive and open conversation. As a teacher, you can also talk to the bilingual children in your class about their bilingualism. How you go about this depends, of course, on the situation, whether it concerns one child or several, and if they're second language learners, how good their knowledge of the school language is. But it all starts with showing interest in their bilingualism. In other words, an interest in the languages that they speak at home. For example, you could ask pupils to share a word from the heritage language and teach it to the other pupils and to you. It might be a word that's to do with a topic that you're dealing with at the moment. You could also discuss the possible advantages and disadvantages of being bilingual or ask the bilingual pupils what they themselves would like to talk about. A nice way to introduce the subjects of bilingualism in the classroom is to use the short animations that I developed together with my colleague Gretjan Kostra. These are three short animations about various aspects of growing up bilingual and bilingualism in general, and they're intended for primary school pupils. The films are available in Dutch, English, Polish, Turkish and Arabic. The link is in the show notes. I must admit they are quite focused on Dutch in that it's always Dutch that's the school language, but the message involved is a message that is relevant for bilingual families in many different parts of the world. Anyway, that was then our Klet's Heads quick and easy for this episode. Talk to your bilingual child about their bilingualism. Klet's Heads quick and easy. All right, so we've really focused a lot on what we know from adults. Let's zoom in now on children. And especially, it's not only an age difference, right? Because most of the work that's been done on bilingual adults are actually adults who have learned a second language as, as an adult themselves or really like second language learners of the language in question. Whereas children often are growing up with their two languages from birth or from very early, early on. So they're learning the two in parallel. Do we see? The effects that you've talked about now with the cognates and the false friends with children as well? Yeah, so there is a lot more work with uh, bilingual adults and especially these later learners of, of English, for example. There, at least, these effects are very robust. We see them all the time. But in children, there hasn't been that much research yet. What we do know, I think, suggests that there are at least the same kinds of effects going on, so the same kind of sharedness in the mind. I don't think there are many studies that really compare children with adults. Mm -hmm. So there might be differences that we can't tell yet. But as far as we know, and I think also makes sense uh, to me at least, that the broad way that that this is uh, all organized in your mind is the same if you're learning a language later or if you're learning it from birth yeah so at least as you get more proficient i think for the for the for the late learners right yeah yeah of yeah. course yeah there are so many differences between bilingual speakers anyway that yeah makes yeah. it also difficult to compare sometimes so so basically then bilingual children like bilingual adults we think they have this one bin with their languages in the organized it's not just a big, uh, literally a bin where you throw in loads of rubbish. It's it's a well-organized bin, right? So things are organized, like you said before, and concepts and the words are linked to each other. 
So uh, doing research with kids is obviously quite different than doing it with adults. Adults will sit and listen and do pretty much more or less what you tell them to do. And they understand what it means to do something really quickly or say whether a word is a real word or not. That's a lot different with children. So can you tell us a bit about some of the ways in which we look into this question of how the words are organized in the bilingual mind with children? Yes, a method that has been used with children from uh, two years old mm-hmm. is called eye tracking. And I've also used this for children that were a bit older, around six years old. So you can use it for uh, yeah, for multiple ages. And what it does is that we can use special kinds of, of cameras where we can measure where people are looking on a screen or whatever. So what, what you would do with these very young kids is... Of course, you can't let them name pictures or anything. They're just too young for that. So instead, they would hear words while they're looking at pictures. For example, they would hear cats. And on the screen, they would see two pictures, uh, a cat and something completely different, like a chair or something. So even in these very young kids, where they are looking can already tell us something about what's going on in their mind. So they would, for example, measure if they're looking towards the, the cat longer than towards the other picture. And then that would suggest that at least they recognize the word and the picture. Mm-hmm. So instead of telling us the word, like we would do with adults, so naming the picture, this is a way to see that in uh, very young children, if they can at least understand the word, know what it means, see what's going on in the picture. And then the type of experiments. Yeah, so you wouldn't just let them hear one word, just the cat, but uh, sequences of words. Mm-hmm. So, for example, they would first hear the word kat in Dutch and then hear the word cat. So the translation of the same word. What some of these studies have shown is that then children would actually look towards the, the picture of the cat more or earlier on compared to when they just heard another word Papier, that means paper. Then they hear cats, so that doesn't have anything to do with each other. And then children look towards the the cat a little bit less than when they had just heard it. Yeah, the translation of the same word in their other language. Mm -hmm. So it's maybe a bit abstract, but what that basically means is that uh, when a child hears cat, yeah, that sort of then they they recognize it as the Dutch word that they know. But because they also speak another language. It already starts to sort of activate or wake up the word in their other language because mm-hmm. they're sort of connected to each other in the mind. In, in, in the way you explained at the start, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, because they, they mean the same thing. They're connected to the same meaning or the same concept. So that, yeah, so, so activating, waking up the word uh, cuts also sort of activates the word cat. It, it takes them less time to process this word that they're hearing and the, the pictures that they're seeing so it's more it's more active in their minds already from the translation they just heard and so then they look more quickly or longer at at the right picture as it were compared with when they've heard something completely unrelated beforehand yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and of course we can use this method to look at other ways in which words are related to each other right like the words that are related because they sound similar or, you know, if the child has to recognize cat, they'll do it quicker if they've heard dog compared with if they heard chair. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because right. it's not just these direct translations or cognates that are connected to each other, but all kind, yeah, dog and cat, they're both animals. So you 
often associate them with each other. And so there's also a connection between these uh, kinds of words. And also, yeah, we see that within the language, but also, uh, yeah, with these sort of meaning related words between different languages or, yeah, also words that share some part of their form that maybe start with the same sounds, even if they don't mean anything related to each other, we can still see effects of yeah, sort of this connection between words. Yeah. Maybe you can tell us because you found that, right? And some of the work that you've done looking at children growing up with Greek and, and Dutch. Maybe you can give us an example from that what, what, to make it a little bit more concrete for people. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the example that comes to my mind is actually, it's a bit unpleasant maybe. Uh, tafel in Dutch is table. And tafos in Greek is a grave. So maybe not the nicest word, but it's just, uh, I think it's a very clear one though. Yeah. So you really have this taf in the beginning of the words. So they, they would first hear tafos and then they hear tafel and see a picture of a table and something unrelated. And then we measured uh, how long it took them or how much they were looking at the picture of the table compared to the, 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 the distractions uh, or the distractor that was also on the screen. What I found is that there is a connection between these words, but actually what happens then is that in the beginning, they uh, look towards the table, the tafel, a little bit less because, yeah, that's when words are similar in sound or share some of their uh, sound. Actually, it can be a bit more difficult instead of easier. Mm -hmm. And actually, that's very similar to what we were talking about earlier with the, the, these false friends. So you have to think a bit about how you recognize two words, one from two different languages, and you have to, to think a little bit more about which one you actually mean in that moment. So if a child hears tafos in Greek and then hears tafel in, in, in Dutch, because they've just heard tafos and tafel is the same, it's almost like, well, oh, uh, it can't be tafel, that was what I just heard. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's right, yeah. Yeah, and of course the connections are even more complex. I mean, if people are thinking, well, that's okay, that seems maybe a little bit complicated, but I suppose, you know, it's just they sound similar. But you found in your data that actually it's even more complicated, right? Because that connection between words that sound similar even happens when you don't mention both words. Yes, so we used two Dutch words, wiel and rok. That means wheel and a skirt. So those don't have anything to do with each other, right? No, I don't think so. <laughs> not, not for most people anyway. But for a Dutch-Greek bilingual child, actually, they do have something in common because the translation of wheel is uh, roda. So that starts with this ro sound that we also see in rok for skirt. Uh -huh. So then what happened, or we could see in, these, in, in the children's uh, eye movements, was that when they would hear wiel, because that's connected to the Greek translation roda, that gets activated, that gets woken up mm -hmm. um, a bit in the mind. But then that starts to interact with rock that they heard afterwards. And then we have these two words that are, have a similar uh, sound. So it's actually more difficult to, you have to think a bit, which one do we mean at this moment in this situation? So even with letting the children hear two Dutch words that have nothing in common in Dutch, you could still see effects of 
yeah, the fact that they know Greek as well, that there's also Greek in their minds in the in this system with all the words that they know. Mm-hmm. So it's like one big network, right? Where things are related to each other, not only on the basis of what they mean. So like the concepts that they refer to. So the, the cat that we had at the start or the wheel in the example we just spoke about, but also in how they sound, the rock and ro, roja. Yeah. Uh, are also somehow related to each other in that network because they start with the same sounds. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's complicated, right? It is. Yeah. It's pretty abstract, I think. Yeah. And, you know, like we said at the start, in, in a certain sense, some of these things that we find in research in the lab are not necessarily things that you would see in real life, but they do tell us something very important about the way in which the words are organized in a bilingual's mind. Now we know that there's a lot of variation in how children behave, well, in general anyway, but also in these experiments and whether all children show the same effects. So right, there are differences, individual differences between children. What what explains these differences? Do we know much about that? Yeah, so as you said, there are many differences between children anyway and between bilinguals as well. So you can imagine bilingual children when you're just learning one language. I mean, there's still a lot of variation, but when you're learning two languages at the same time, you don't always get the same amount of of input in both of the languages. Mm -hmm. Maybe what I did a lot as a child, my parents would speak Greek to me and I would speak Dutch to them. So there's just way more options uh, for variation. Mm -hmm. And it also changes over time. On holiday in Greece, I would be hearing more Greek and speaking it more because there is so much variation. There's also still a lot that we don't know, but especially proficiency. So how well you can speak or understand the language is something that has been shown, at least in adults, very often that it it has an effect on how how active the languages are in your mind. Um, Mm -hmm. So how easily you activate uh, words from that language. And I think yeah, we still have a lot of work to do for child research. I think we have some evidence, some studies that have found these same type of effects. Yeah. So it's like uh, the better the two languages are, then the more likely one is going to help the other or one is going to interfere with the other, as it, as it were. Yeah. 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 And, and does it matter how many languages a child knows? I don't think we really know much, do we, about uh, whether trilinguals behave differently from bilinguals? No, not not really. So I think there we have even more variation, of course. The more languages you put in the mix, the more yeah, the more options there are, the more different uh, types of input you might be getting. But I think in principle, I wouldn't really think that there would be a difference between bilinguals or trilinguals or multilinguals. And again, here, I have to go back to what we know from adults. There, it also seems to really depend on how well you speak the languages. Mm-hmm. So not really how many you speak, but how well you speak them, how often you're hearing them in your daily life. And I think the more languages this you speak, the less likely, maybe on average, it is that you speak all these languages very well. Yeah, so it's not really about how many languages you speak, but how yeah how well you speak them. Yeah. So, I mean, we've spoken about trilingualism before on the podcast. And one of the main things that came out in that episode was that the factors that affect bilinguals are very, the same ones affect trilinguals as well. So there's here again, there's no reason to believe that trilinguals 
are differ in any significant way from bilinguals, right? The same factors seem to play a role. Yeah. So at the start then I said, you know, one of the things that characterizes being bilingual actually for children and for adults is that you can't always find the right word in the right language. You said that yourself as well, right? When you were talking about speaking Greek. So given everything that we've talked about in today's episode, how how do we explain that then that as bilinguals, we can't always find the right word in the right language or so quickly? Yeah, that's a good question. I think if I would have to characterize it as that we just have more as as bilinguals or multilinguals we just have more information in our minds that we have more things more words to to consider to think about all at the same time because you really can't turn off your other language and like ellie explained earlier not being able to turn off your other language can sometimes lead you up the garden path think back to the example of acorn and acorn But it can also sometimes help you because you're better able to recognize words in another language more quickly or more easily. And it can also lead to some pretty creative language use. So the reason my family sometimes say horses instead of pardon, as in pardon me, is because pardon is the Dutch word for horses. I can't honestly remember how, but this at one point became a joke in our family. So this is one of the false friends we spoke about earlier. Words which sound or look very similar, but mean something different. Vest is also such an example. Vest is a piece of underwear, a top without sleeves that you wear under your clothes to keep you warm in the winter, at least in British English. But in Dutch, vest is the word for a jacket something you put on top of your clothes and not under them. What's the deal then with the toilet saddle I mentioned at the start? Well, this is actually quite an interesting puzzle. My daughter started saying saddle for the toilet seat when she was quite young and has used it pretty much consistently ever since. Her brother even says it now too. Why exactly, I'm not entirely sure, but I'm pretty certain it's because she also knows Dutch. So the Dutch word for seat, like a bike seat, something of course that children in the Netherlands know about from a very early age, is a fietszadel. So fiets is the Dutch word for bike and zadel is the word for seat in this case. Zadel sounds of course like saddle in English, And so somehow she ended up using this word for a different kind of seat, the one on the toilet. Now, of course, I have no idea whether this is really what happened. If you have any other suggestions or if you know of any English speaking children who also say saddle for the toilet seat, but are not speakers of Dutch at the same time, do let me know. It's important to bear in mind with all of the examples and research findings we've spoken about in this episode that whilst some of this happens very consciously, like our our joke with pardon and horses, most of it does not. And the differences we spoke about in the way bilinguals respond to different kinds of words are really a matter of milliseconds, so we're talking about very tiny differences. In many cases, you won't even notice them when you or your children are going about your day-to-day business. But they do offer us a window into the bilingual mind and how this deals with words from two languages. That's it for this episode. 
we'll be back in two weeks with the last episode of the season when in Let's Clets I talk to Francesca Lamorgia from Mother Tongues in Ireland about bilingualism and the arts. And in Hot Off the Press, I tell you about some of my own research when I share the results of the project we carried out last year on the impact of the pandemic on bilingual families. Until then. If you want to know more about Kletz Heads, go to our website at kletzheadspodcast.org. That's where you'll also find more information about this episode. If you want to make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to Kletz Heads using your favourite podcast app. If you know someone else who might enjoy the podcast, then I'd really appreciate it if you would share it with them. You can do this via the website or in your podcast app. And if you're on social media, we'd love it if you followed us. Our handle is at Kletz Heads. Thanks for listening and until the next time. Or as we say in Dutch, tot de volgende keer.